First impressions are important. I talked with one of my staff members this week, and uh, they said, hey, you got to stop with the football jokes. You've done them for like six weeks now. And so we are not going to talk about how the 49ers won last night. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that at all. Because first impressions are important, and I said I wouldn't talk about football uh, anymore. And so I'm not going to do that today. But first impressions are important, especially when you meet your spouse for the first time. Do you remember the first time you met the person who you would be married to, or maybe if you've lost that person, you look back and you remember the first time um, that you saw and laid eyes on them? I remember. Um, I should. If I don't, I'm in big trouble. Um, if you didn't know this, three or four members of our family all met their spouse at Starbucks, and we're all agreed at this point we should get like a commercial and they should start paying us uh, to have Starbucks. But I remember I walked through the doors and I held the door for someone else who was with me, and my future wife and her sister were sitting down at a table, and uh, she saw me. She's like, "Okay, you know, this guy just opened a door for someone else. I mean, he's kind of nice." And I walked in, and uh, I was in guitar school at this time, was playing jazz music, and uh, I shopped at three stores. And so I had like a $3 jacket. I think my entire ensemble was like eleven and a half dollars It was really bad. And I had jeans on and there were big holes in the jeans where you could see my thighs. And in case you're curious, I am so lacking in pigmentation that I might as well be translucent. And so I, I didn't have a beard at that time. Like I looked like a child. And so I'm glad that young, pale ginger uh, was kind of like my, my wife's type at the time. And so we sat down, or I sat down, um, and I was planning on talking to this guy I was meeting. We sat down because he knew them. And uh, apparently I had made a decent first impression. I really wasn't looking for anybody at the time. I just wanted to like finish school and move on with my life. And meanwhile, my wife is apparently planning our wedding day and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, cool, <laughs> excellent. And so, but first impressions mean a lot. And they can mean different things to different people because as I sat down and I was like, oh, she's very cute, she's kind of feisty, I really like that. The guy that I was with thought the first impression that I made was with her sister. And so he set me up on a date with her, which was very awkward. It's kind of funny now, we don't talk about it at family gatherings because it's kind of you know, awkward. But eventually she passed me off like a cheap piece of meat to my future wife and we went on a bunch of days, dates and the rest they say is history. But my first impression with her and her first impression with me and my first impression with both both of them with my friend, we all kind of saw the same thing differently. And what I want to talk about today is how Jesus made his first impression with a great multitude of people through a miracle. So today, we're going to talk about Jesus, the miracle worker. And we've been asking this question, what did Jesus, or what did people say about Jesus? What did people say about Jesus? And we've kind of tried to talk about that not only in a first century way, but also in a way today. What do people still say about Jesus today? And this one is important because it's a, a lot of people said he was a miracle worker, a miracle worker. And this is, has all sorts of implications, not only for back then, which we're going to talk about today, but also for today. And there are lots of ways to talk about miracles. And I want to give a, a few different things. You know, I, I've told you guys many times that I'm a highly skeptical person, former atheist. It was hard for me to get to a place where I could believe in Jesus. And miracles was one of those things that kind of stumped me. It was this, this last kind of um, barrier for me to go, do I believe that the Bible is real and the things that happen in it were actually real? And so miracles, the way we talk about them, I think we need to be careful not only about how we talk about them, we need to do them justice and make sure we know what a miracle is and also what a miracle is not. 
You know, what's interesting about this is if you're a skeptical person, maybe like me, and part of Christianity, part of the reason it's hard to believe is because miracles seem to go against nature. They seem to stop or they seem to go and, and uh, suspend things in nature. A couple things might be helpful. You know, we do this all the time. All the time, every time you get in an airplane, you suspend one of the laws of nature, which is gravity. You know, scientists have split atoms. Something in nature was meant to be whole. We have split it. We've created all sorts of molecules that are not found in nature. We do this all the time where we suspend the laws of nature. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that something that we don't understand and quite can't comprehend happens. But also how we describe a miracle is very, very important. I'm going to say I've had a lot of healthy discussions uh, with people on miracles. Some of them have been with my fellow Christians, some of them with people who've gone to this church, some people who've gone to another church. Some of it has been with people who are, are pastors, maybe we don't see eye to eye. Some of it has been with atheists or people from different religions. And how people describe a miracle is very, very different. There's kind of a semantical problem, how you describe the meaning of a word. And so sometimes we'll say, you know, it's a look at the miracle of childbirth. And while that's beautiful and joyful, and every time, I mean, the first time I held my kids, I was like, how do you not believe in God when you hold your kid or your grandkid for the first time? There's a belief aspect, I think, that's associated with that. But we know how children are made, and we know how children are born, and I will not go through that with you today. Do not worry. But to say it's a miracle, what we really mean is this is beautiful, and this is incredible. And sometimes we use miracle as just something that's unbelievable, even as we're witnessing something that's right in front of us. We're like, I, that was an unbelievable catch. I can't believe it was a miracle that the Cubs won. You know, it's something that we talk about as if it didn't happen, but it's right in front of our very eyes. And what we really mean is that is so rare that that is incredible that that happened. We even use the term miracle sarcastically. It's a miracle that dude's alive with how he eats and drinks. It's a miracle they're alive with all the dangerous stuff that they do. And none of those does miracle justice. A miracle, I don't have a definition with you because there are so many ways to define this, and I didn't want to like put one definition in your head. But one of the ways that I think about it is it's God's sovereign action or event that breaks through creation and does what creation itself could never do on its own. And, and sovereignty is just a way of talking about God's authority and his power and the way he does things. But it's interesting, and if we had more time to talk about this, because there's a lot i got to get to, I would argue that a miracle is not the breaking of the laws of nature, but it's the showcasing of what the laws of nature, when they work well, actually happen. How they actually happen, how they're supposed, how God created his creation to work and move. But miracles are going to be an important part about talking about the identity of Jesus. You know, in Mark chapter 6, verse 2, it said, and we, we quoted this in the first part of this series called 90, is that they were questioning how Jesus could do and teach and do the things that he did. And in one instance, uh, the people who were witnessing and they, they'd heard that Jesus had performed miracles and that he had been a great teacher in the synagogues, they asked these questions, where did this man get these things? Meaning, how, did he, how was he able to teach? How was he able to uh, expositorily explain scripture? How was he able to do the things that we can't explain? They said, what's this wisdom that had been given to? He's got some sort of teaching and connection that had been given to him. And how are these miracles performed by his hands? And you notice they don't say, they don't question that the miracle actually happened. In Jesus's day, they were probably far more, even the people who were not religious, even the Romans and the people who had many gods, they wouldn't, like our culture today, question as far 
as miracles happening. They assumed that they were a part of life. In fact, many religions taught on how miracles were performed and what happened in them, or maybe they just had a different name for them. So there's an assumption here in Jesus's time that miracles are acknowledged. And it's only when you get to the Western world and post-enlightenment that we begin to question whether or not miracles happen in the first place. And I'm gonna give you just one place where Jesus does all sorts of incredible things. It happens in Matthew 8. Miracles happen in Matthew 8. Here's a long list of just one chapter of the Bible. A man with leprosy was made clean. A man with leprosy comes to Jesus and he says, hey, will you make me clean? It's an interesting way of describing this miracle. He doesn't say, will you heal my hand? He says, will you make me clean? Because maybe I can get this again, or maybe I just want to be clean with God. Will you do that? And so Jesus does that. There's a long distance healing of paralysis. Jesus runs into a guy who isn't really a part of the religion that's established at this time, and he has this incredible interaction with him, and Jesus heals from afar. He doesn't even have to make a house call. And then there's the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Some people didn't really like this one. Sorry to mother-in-laws everywhere, but healing of Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus understood how much Peter loved his mother-in-law. And he does this as a supreme favor by just touching her hand. And she gets up and begins serving them. Then there are exorcisms of demon possession. Again, not something that was questioned in the ancient world, where demon possession was not just happenstance, but regular people would see that something would happen to their kid or their relative or someone else, and they would say, that is not them. And Jesus comes up and he just says a word. And he showcases his power and authority, and demons leave people. And then there's the calming of nature. Jesus is literally asleep in a boat, and all these waves are crashing over, and all the disciples are like, we're going to die. And then they, they ask Jesus, and he wakes up from his nap. He's like, what is wrong with you? And he just calms the storm. Like, these are all the miracles just in one chapter. Now, the challenge with this is, is that miracles, you have to pick how you engage with miracles. And I want to say it this way. You know, the unbelievable things Jesus said and did actually make him believable. Actually make him believable. And that's kind of one of the things I want to hopefully showcase today. The unbelievable things that Jesus said and did actually make him believable. Because his claims about who he was were backed up by the actions that he performed. When you say, I am God, people are going to have some questions, right? And he didn't literally quote that. He said, I I and the Father are one. He said, I am the great I am. He said all sorts of things. But when you claim that you are a deity, when you are the God of the universe, people are like, prove it. Show me, huh? Show me a card trick, Jesus. It's probably a little bit more than that. But people wanted to know, if you really are who you say you are, you should showcase some of the things that you can do. And that's part of the reason that Jesus does what he does, especially when it comes to the miraculous. It made him credible. It made him credible in the eyes of people. Now, again, part of the challenge with this is that there is actually more of a connection between the two words I'm about to tell you that do not seem to go together at all. And that is faith and reason. Faith 
and reason. You know, when I was an atheist, these two things seemed like they were on polar opposites of the spectrum. And for many of you and many people in the world, they still seem that way. Is that if you are a faithful person, it almost means you've turned off your brain and you just accept things as they are. You're the weird religious person. And if you're a reasonable person, if you like logic and reason, it seems like the miraculous is out of bounds for you. But both of them have a strange intersection that I'm going to hopefully show you in just a second. I want to say it this way. You know, we all have beliefs. We just don't have the same beliefs. Every person on the face of the planet has a belief. This includes atheists, agnostic, people of different religions, people who are Christian, people who are non-Christians. All of us have beliefs. And even the most ardent person who says, I don't believe in God, I do not believe in the miraculous, I don't believe in Jesus, said he was, you have beliefs too. Let me give you a few examples. I mean, a belief is just a confidence in or a trust in an event or in a person. Let me give you a few examples. You believe that the sun is going to rise tomorrow until it doesn't. Someday, scientists tell us that maybe the sun is going to burn out and it's just it's not going to rise. You believe, according to the weatherman or weatherwoman, that it will rain tomorrow. And I can't believe you can be wrong that many times and still have a job. I don't understand it, but you can. But you can look at the weather and say, I believe it's going to rain tomorrow. So this has an 80% chance. And then the next day comes and it might rain and it might not, Right? Or maybe it's a different one. You know, if, you ever, if you've ever taken your car in to a mechanic, do you, do you have all the expertise to verify everything that they have said? No. You're like, hey, the brakes sound like they're funny, and you, you get them back, and they said, hey, we fixed your brakes, or we fixed your engine, or we fixed something. At the end of the day, you don't like pop the hood and look at the brakes. You're like, oh, I see what you did here. You, you don't have the expertise to do it. Or, or when you get a new cell phone bill and you get a new cell phone, do you read the 93 pages of fine print? You do not. If you do, you're, something's wrong with you. Knowing nobody got that time. But the reason I say that is, and then we could say it this way, everyone believes something because of someone. You took the mechanic's word. You took the people you know, who were selling you the phone. You, you took your doctor's word. You took your friend's word. You took someone's word that they said, I believe this will happen or this will happen or I've done this for you. And because you don't have the expertise, the knowledge, or the time, you took someone else at their word. You know, a different way to think about it, maybe a more serious way to think about it, is our justice system. Did you know the most common form of evidence in a courtroom is eyewitness testimony? Eyewitness testimony. Someone coming to either someone's defense or someone's conviction and say, I was there, I saw what happened, he or she did that thing, or I, I was there, I watched, he or she did not do that thing. It's the most common form of saying and proving whether or not something happened. And the reason I bring that up is can we use that same form of validation in the Gospels to see whether or not Jesus really did do the things that he said he did and scriptures that he did? And if so, what does that mean for you and I? Because everyone believes something because of someone. All of us cannot verify everything. Every single person on the face of the planet has belief in someone or something. 
So John, John chapter 20, is no different. John believed in Jesus because of the things he said and because of the things he saw. And John outlived everybody. If you didn't know, John is the oldest living apostle, and he outlived everyone. His gospel came out 30 or 40 years after the events, which is still within one generation. He had a great memory. And part of the reason that he wrote his gospel is that as he was getting to the end of his life, he was the last one standing who knew and saw and walked with Jesus. And many people said, hey, why don't you write down the things that you saw and heard? Because we need to hear these things. And you got four accounts of Jesus' life, four eyewitness testimonies. If this was a courtroom, it'd be four different people. Uh, three of them were eyewitnesses, and John was one of them. And John tells us the purpose of writing his gospel at the very end of his gospel. Here's what he says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, his gospel. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He tells you exactly at the end of the book why he wrote the things that he said. Now in John's gospel, there are seven signs. I'm going to show you one. Some of you have never seen this sign before, or you've seen it and you've chosen to ignore it. There's another version of this sign. It's octagonal. It's got four letters on it. It's bright red. You haven't seen that one either. The reason that signs are there is to show you and to point you to something. The reason this sign is to say, do not turn left. Because if you do that, if you turn left, even though it suggests you should not, you'll run into some trouble, but mostly it's there to keep you on a certain path. It's there to signify what is to come. And the reason that John, John's interesting because he's the only gospel writer that uses the word sign in place of the word miracle when describing the acts of Jesus. Because signs point to something. A sign that has nothing on it is useless. It communicates no information. It doesn't tell you what to stay away from. It doesn't tell you where to go. It doesn't tell you what's upcoming. So John talks about Jesus' miracles in terms of a sign. And the first sign that Jesus does, his first impression to people after he goes public, the Gospel of John says Jesus was, came on the scene and it starts, if you were to go all the way to the beginning of the Gospel of John, you would have this incredible thing, the Word was made flesh and he made his dwelling among us and he is the divine Logos. And then you've got John the Baptist and people thought John the Baptist was the man and John the Baptist says, nope, Jesus is the man. And then, then over the next couple days, Jesus just appears on the scene. He calls three different disciples. And then on day three, which we'll get here in just a second, he performs his first miracle. So right out of the gate, Jesus' first public ministry appearance is in a miraculous form. So in John chapter 2, it says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. Now, Jesus did not have to do this. He could have waited years into his ministry. He could have taught for a long time. He could have gained credibility. He could have practiced all these little tricks that would impress people. But he starts off his ministry with a miracle. And so here's how it happens. In John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, I'm just going to walk you through this story and the importance of it. So it says, on the third day. Now, I wish we had more time to showcase how important this is. As you read scripture, numbers, times, events, and places really signify something. It's orchestrated in such a way that it points back to something. Now, the third day in scripture is mentioned a lot. In fact, Jesus mentions it himself more than like 21 times. But if you go back to in the Old Testament, the third day is when God 
created life. And the Gospel of Genesis is where the beginning of new life happens. And if you look throughout lots of different places in the Old and the New Testament, the third day is significance of a brand new thing. Something new was coming. And John picks this up. It is on this day that Jesus will bring something new. And if you were to fast forward in this series, what day does Jesus bring something new to the entire world? Friday, he's crucified. Saturday, he rests. The third day, Sunday, he proves, ultimately, the miraculous life after death. And John picks up on that. So on the third day, there was a wedding that took place in Cana and Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. So Jesus' mother is invited to this this wedding already. And Jesus and his disciples, who arrived a little bit late, had been invited, but they're not there yet. And if you didn't know, in the first century, a wedding was not a one-day affair. We think it's so stressful now. Most of us spend our, or at least the ladies do, spend a lot of time trying to get to their wedding day. This was a week. Can you imagine trying to feed people for a week? None of us will get married. Too expensive. Sorry. No. This is a week. So much pressure. And in a shame and honor culture, doing a wedding right was so much pressure for the family. Not only in a financial way, but to make sure you had all, everything planned out. You had enough for the guests. People would show up from all around. They would come from far and near for a week to celebrate two people. So when the wine was gone, which immediately spells trouble, immediately spells trouble, the wine is gone. Jesus' mother says to him, they have no more wine. This was a pivotal part I mean, can you imagine running out of wine? I mean, it's like saying the party's over. People are like, I'm going to go to the next wedding. I'm going to wedding wedding hop. Maybe this was uh, possibly the start of wedding hopping because people are like, the wine is out. I'm just going to go to the next one. But this would have brought shame upon the family who was hosting this because you do not run out of wine. They would have spent plenty of money making sure that there was enough wine and food for the entirety of the week-long procession. But a tragedy happens in the middle of this wedding that they have run out of wine. And Jesus' mother picks this up, probably because she knew the people. That's why she was invited. She says, they have no more wine. And she says, hey, Jesus, she turns to him, maybe has a look and only a mom could do. Hey, will you do something about this? And he says this, woman, why do you involve me? And just in case we think this is disrespectful, it's not. It's not. Men never do this with any woman in your life if you want to live. But it's not one of those things. It does not mean what you think it means in their culture. In fact, it's the opposite. It's a sign of respect. He's acknowledging his mother. And he says, woman, why, why do you involve me? And it's interesting what he says here. He says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, again, I I wish we had more time to talk about this because there's so much fascinating things here. One is that when Jesus talks about his hour, he always means his crucifixion. He always means the day that he is going to be crucified. He says, my time to show the world who I really am and what I'm really about has not come. So there's an interesting play here because maybe, and I'm just saying maybe because I don't know, I I wouldn't probably uh, uh, entertain this idea too much, but maybe Jesus hadn't intended on performing a miracle here. You could get that from the text. Now, I tend to believe that this is an interaction between Jesus and his mother, and there's this divine human thing going on in Jesus, and he's like, look, I, I can do something, but this isn't the time for me to show the world who I truly am. 
But she says, do whatever he tells you, which tells you that even Jesus listens to his mama, right? Because he does something. But imagine, uh, this, is, this is not in the scripture, but I imagine Jesus like think this, hey, mom, I've come to save the world, not to save weddings. I've come to save the world, not to save weddings. I'm not that kind of wedding guy. I don't want to get into that business, okay? He came for bigger purposes. But because Jesus saw an opportunity, here's what he does. It says, nearby stood six stone water jars. And again, the, the detail that John gives us and the other gospel writers give us is so pivotal. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the, jo- the Jews for ceremonial washing. An important detail to this story. You know, John could have just said, there are six really big containers of which Jesus turned water into wine. But the reason this is so important and the reason he adds this detail about ceremonial washing is that Jesus comes to bring about what these ceremonial washings only symbolized when people took the water that came out of the ceremonial washing, they could wash themselves on the outside. They could get all the dirt off. They had a ceremonial washing. It was symbolic of their relationship with God. But Jesus wouldn't do it from the outside. He would do it from the inside out. What these ceremonial jars represented was you had to come back to get clean. And Jesus is like, I'm going to use those to make sure that no one is ever going to think of themselves as dirty before God again. These will be obsolete in Jesus' lifetime. Pretty fascinating. Each of them holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That's a lot. So Jesus said to the servants, hey, fill the jars with water. And they're like, what does this guy do? Like, we need wine. Why would we fill them with water? So they filled each of them to the brim. They're like, all right, fine. This is, they're going to notice, you know, <laughs> they're going to notice this isn't red. They're going to notice there's no alcohol in it. They're not going to take a sip and be like, hmm, light vintage. They're not going to do that. So they filled them to the brim. And honestly, Jesus doesn't even touch them. He just kind of is standing back and he's kind of like, all right, fill them up. All right, take it out. So they draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. You imagine if we were to like be there in this story, is that they dip the ladle and they come out and they're like, that is not water. That is not water. And they're like, what just happened? Dude, I don't know. Just take it, okay? I don't know. And they take it to the master of the banquet. And so they did so. And the master of the banquet, the guy who is in charge of putting on all this, tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize, he's got no clue where it came from. He's like, oh, we we have more wine. This is great. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, they're just like, oh man, this is, how do we explain this one, you know, to our friends? Like, people are not going to believe this. And then he called the bridegroom aside, the master of the banquet, he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. It's just incredibly practical. I love this. He's basically like, you know, when you're all are drunk, we bring out the cheaper wine because you're not going to know the difference. You can't feel your face anyways. You're not going to feel your taste buds either, so you're not going to notice. We bring out the best wine first, the expensive stuff. You're like, this party is amazing. And then they bring out the $3 bottle of wine that you wouldn't feed your dogs. And they bring it out, and he says, look, you always bring out the choice wine first. And everyone knew this. This was common knowledge. And the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink, a way more PC way to say it than I just did. But he says, you've saved the best. Until last, you've given us the best at the very end. And if we had more time, we could showcase how this is just foreshadowing of how God 
and saved the best for last. But remember, John tells us that this is the first of Jesus' meaning. John chapter 2, what Jesus did here was the first of the signs through which he believed his glory and his disciples believed in him. What's interesting about this scripture is that John totally downplays the miracle. Totally downplays. The miracle is only like two sentences. Fill up the water jars, draw it out. That's it. You would think if you saw a miracle, it would be all over Instagram, people making reels about it. It would be in your Facebook story. People would be taking pictures. People would be going to dinner that night, talking about what the miracle was like. And John, the apostle, totally downplays it. It's like, yeah, Jesus performed this miracle. It's kind of impressive. But it was never the point. The point is here in this scripture. The point is not, wow, Jesus should be invited to more parties, just in case. That's not the point. John tells us the point. Just like a sign points you to something, Jesus' miracles pointed his disciples into belief in him. The whole purpose of the miracle was this. So they would believe in him. We can say it this way. You know, the reason they believed is that there was a reason to believe. They saw it with their own eyes. And it's so fascinating because John doesn't say, ah, oh, they weren't impressed. They've seen Jesus do this a million times. No, this is the first time. They were like, man, we just thought we were following a rabbi, a good teacher. Dude's changing water into wine. This changes our whole outlook on who this guy is. And maybe that's why in John chapter 20, he makes sure to bookend his book, both in the first part and the last part. You can go to the next scripture, John chapter 20. said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded. These are just the ones we know about. These are just the ones we know about. And he says in the beginning of his book, at the end of his book, he wants us to know right up front when Jesus performed the miracles, it was so his disciples believed. And writing down what had happened was so the rest of us could believe. These are written that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, not just some traveling rabbi, not just some first century Jew we have a lot of historical documents about, but the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in his name. John gives us an incredible view on why it was important to understand Jesus as a miracle worker. Now, to bring it back to the eyewitness account, because John is, is writing down something he saw. He wasn't writing it down third, fourth, fifth. It wasn't a legend. There's, no, there's not enough time for there to become like, hey, we heard Jesus went to a wedding. To, hey, we heard Jesus went to a wedding, and there was a problem. And then another generation, there was a problem there. And Jesus did something no one could explain. And then another generation is like, I heard he performed a miracle. Legends and myths develop over time. John's writing this within one generation. If he wrote these words, other people are like, I was at that wedding. I was there. Me and my wife took amazing pictures. There was no why. I mean, no, they didn't have photographs back then. Of course not. But it's enough that if he were to write these words, someone could call him out and say, I was there. That did not happen. And it's unchallenged because people saw and believed. And by believing, they might have life in his name. Now, coming back to, again, the, the, the witness portion of this is that remember we said that you could go into a courtroom 
And if someone is on trial and they actually did this thing, you would still need an eyewitness account or a preponderance of evidence. But if you had someone who said, I was there, I saw it, it actually happened, that's what they did, you could convict them. But an eyewitness account can also set you free. We can say it this way. If we can confirm someone's guilt in a courtroom with an eyewitness account, can we be convinced of our innocence in Christ with an eyewitness account? Can we do this too? Because Jesus came to showcase, and again, there's all sorts of legal language in the Bible that Jesus would come to judge, that God the Father would come to judge, that there would be a sentencing, and there would be a conflict, and there would be a consequence. Wouldn't it be great If by the eyewitness account of people like John and Mark and Peter and Paul, wouldn't it be great if their eyewitness accounts of what Jesus said and did convinced you that your innocence before God comes because of Jesus Christ? Isn't that something that you would... Because everyone believes something because of someone. And my suggestion is to you is maybe the someone you should believe are the people who sat and talked and ate and were there when Jesus performed his miracles so that you and I have belief. But I want to give you some cautions and maybe some, what do you do with this today? Let me give you a couple, three different ways to think about it. I want to give you two next steps. The first one is, seeing or experiencing a miracle does not directly lead to belief in Jesus as the Savior of the world. You would think it would. You would think if you saw someone walking on water, healing a paralytic man, bringing someone back from the dead, doing long distance healing of paralysis, changing water into wine, and turning a kid's lunch into food for 5,000 people, would people go like, you know what, kind of believe in God now. Well, that's convincing, yeah. It didn't happen. And we know that because the Pharisees didn't say, should we believe in him? They said, what are we going to do with him? It did not get them to believe in him. Just like today, a miracle is not a guarantee that someone will believe in Jesus Christ. I'll use myself as an example. I've heard of them. I may have possibly seen them when I was an atheist. I'm telling you, I could explain it away, no problem. But like, it wasn't dead, just very asleep. I could explain away so many things and so many people today, given enough time and space between the act of what you saw or what you heard about, you're like, oh, maybe it wasn't supernatural. You know, maybe they didn't really break their leg and it healed. I mean, maybe it was just like maimed a little bit or something. We can explain it away, which means experiencing a miracle, you have to make a choice. You have to go, I believe that was God. And it causes me to believe more deeply in him. Or it forces you in the other direction. I don't believe that was a miracle at all. I don't think that was God. I think it was just luck. Number two, supernatural occurrences, hopefully, of miracles, hopefully lead to the very natural response of faith in Christ. Very natural response. Did you know if you added up all of the miracles in the Bible, they're so rare that only one miracle happens every eight years in the Bible. One. But there are four places in Scripture where they happen in massive clumps. I'll give you all four. The first one is Moses and when he's taken people out of Egypt. God performs so many miracles through Moses in order to set his people free, in order to start his people in a new place. 
The second one is during the time of the prophets, <clears throat> when uh, God's people are conquered or taken away from their homeland or both, God sent spokespeople to represent him. And one of the ways they proved that they were representatives of God is they had to perform miracles to showcase that they were connected to God. There's lots of different ways that happens in the <clears throat> major and minor prophets. The third is the ministry of Jesus. There are so many miracles recorded in the ministry of Jesus. And as John pointed out, so many that are not recorded because it verified and quantified Jesus's authority and who he said he was. And then the fourth one is the beginning of the church. If you read after the Gospels and you peek into the, the Acts, <clears throat> the book of Acts, there are so many miracles in the book of Acts because God transferred his authority through the Holy Spirit to his disciples in order to showcase that God was doing something new. He started the church on the back of miracles, and then they kind of trickle off as people begin to believe and put their faith <clears throat> in Jesus. And the reason I bring that up is that all miracles are supposed to lead to the very natural response in Christ to go, God, I'm so thankful and so grateful, and you have verified with me that you are real. Number three, the miracle that you and I should form our faith around is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope of our own resurrection someday. If you are to look at any miracle in Scripture with awe and wonder and purpose, it's this one. We may love that Jesus enticed Peter to walk on water. We may love the 5,000 people who were fed by fish and loaves and the 4,000 the other one. We may love that Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead. But all of them are to point to this one, the miracle that trumps them all, the resurrection of life eternal for you and I. This is the one we should build our faith around. Now, I want to give you two next steps. I want to explain them because how do you take next steps with miracles? You're like, I guess I'll go look for one. You know, how do you do this? Two next steps as it comes to what people say about Jesus, that he was a miracle worker, and what you can actually do. Number one is to ask yourself what your faith is built on. Ask yourself what your faith is built on. Your faith cannot only be built on knowledge. And I'm telling you this is a reasonable or hopefully reasonable person who likes reason, highly skeptical, even as a Christian and as a pastor, a person who likes things orderly. I like to explain things. I'm a fan of science. But at the end of the day, my faith cannot and your faith should not just be based on what you see and what you know and what you hear. It should be based on that, but it can't only be based on that. Because that's one of the reasons that John wrote his gospel. He's like, I can't explain how this stuff happened. I just, I just have to write it down so other people can experience it. Ask yourself, is your faith built on knowledge? Is your faith built on someone else? Is your faith built on your parents? Is your faith built on something that someone says? Or is it built on the supernatural occurrences of God within history, especially the resurrection? Because your faith and my faith is built on a miracle. You know, if Jesus was crucified and died, none of us would be here if there was no third day. If there was no miraculous come back to life moment, none of us would have hope. The reason that you and I should have faith is because of the miracle that trumps them all. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
to life after death and the hope that it brings with you and I. Now, the second thing you do is maybe a little bit surprising. I want to explain this one. Join in with others in praying for a miracle for someone. Now, some of you, this is going to totally weird you out. You're like, ah, man, what do I do with this? Because there's all sorts of ways this can go. And I want to name three or four of them. The first one is you can just say, look, I just think of prayers for someone else's comfort. I don't really believe that God is going to do anything miraculous. I've been praying a long time, never seen it. And at this point, my hope is just that God will provide them comfort. Either because someone is dying, someone has broken their leg, or that there's some financial thing that they could need, or that there's something that could happen in their life or in their marriage that can totally turn the tables around. I'm not sure I really believe that's going to happen, so I just want to pray that God would comfort them. That's a way to think about it. And unfortunately, many Christians do think that way. Then there's the opposite of the spectrum. There's the expectation that your prayer should always equal a miracle. I don't think the scripture points to that either. Because miracles, by their definition, are rare. And they're solely at the discretion of God and not us, which is a great thing. If it was up to us, we would mess it up. So it's solely at the discretion of God. Now, another, a couple other ways you can think about this is that what if the miracle happens? Because you can go a couple different ways in that too. You can take the route that I used to take as a young man. Ah, it wasn't really a miracle. I prayed for it. It happened. I witnessed it. But no, like that's such a stubborn way of thinking about it, right? You're like, I wanted it. I prayed for it. God did it. I saw it. Ah, not for me. I don't think so. You can get to that point. You can be so callous or maybe just so turned off of God's divine power within the world that seeing one may not even build your faith. Or you can pray for one and it happens and it builds you up and you go, oh my gosh, God really listens. He really answers. He actually did something. He is who he says he was. And it builds up your faith. Just to give one more. And this is the one probably that happens the most often. The, one, the other ones I named don't happen as often is this last one. When people pray for a miracle, do you know what often happens? Nothing. Nothing. People die. People's legs don't get healed except with a cast and science. Marriages fall apart. You don't get the finances that you need. And that may be the most important instance of you praying for a miracle in all of this. Because what are you going to do when the God of the universe says, I hear you and I saw you and the answer is no. Will you still believe and have allegiance in him? Will you still say, I honor your no. And I know you can, but just because you didn't does not make you worth following because you definitely performed the greatest miracle of all time. I know that one. You came back from the dead and that is enough to give me hope for the person that I'm praying for and for me and my family who can rest assured knowing that the greatest miracle in all of history was shown in eyewitness accounts. And I believe it. It's what my faith is built on. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for these, not just stories, but historical documents. You know, sometimes we think about these as tall tales with Aesop's fables and other myths that we have read, but it is so corroborated by such a cloud of witnesses, as Scripture says. 
about both people who were skeptical and non-believers who wrote about the incredible things that you did. And Lord, help us, even as we pray for others for a miracle, and as we discover what our faith is built on, help us remember that you performed the greatest of all, the resurrection of your son, and you've given hope to the world. Help us remember that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you so much. We're going to end uh, this series next week, and we're going to talk about how Jesus is called the blasphemer. You're not going to want to miss next week. Thank you so much. You are already blessed in Christ. Have a great Sunday. Thank you.